Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Jeff Zentner, author of the William C. Morris award-winning and Carnegie Medal long-listed book, The Serpent King, from 2016, as well as Goodbye Days, which released just this year. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and came to writing through music, starting his creative life as a guitarist and eventually becoming a songwriter. Jeff joined me today to talk about the cyclical nature of what's hot and what's not in YA, our mutual love of Stephen King, and how his love of music led him into a career as a novelist. Most of my audience is made up of aspiring authors, so I want to ask you about your querying journey and how you got an agent. The first book I ever wrote was this YA realistic post-apocalyptic. So Mm -hmm. think in the vein of The Road or Station Eleven. I described it as The Road meets The Gilmore Girls, if you can imagine (laughs) This was in 2012. Yeah, you're screwed. Yep, 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 yep. I I learned that the hard way. I thought, in my mind, there was a clear difference between a dystopian novel, which kind of depicted a society, an existing society, that didn't work or that worked Mm -hmm. in kind of a malevolent way. So that's what I thought of as a dystopian book. Like, I don't think of The Hunger Games as a post-apocalyptic book. I think of that as a dystopian book. And I don't think of The Road or Station Eleven as dystopian books. I think of them as post-apocalyptic books. So in my mind, there was this very clear distinction. So I wrote this manuscript, and I started querying it around, and I just came up absolutely empty. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody would touch it. I queried probably 10 or 11 agents and just nobody was interested at all. And I talked with a friend who's, who's a YA writer, and she said, yeah, you know, it kind of doesn't matter how good it is. Now is just not the time for it. If I were you, I would write your next manuscript. In 2013, the end of 2013, I started writing The Serpent King. And I'd had it in my head for a while. And so the writing, the drafting of it went pretty quickly. Early 2014 that I finished it. I gave it to a friend of mine who is a freelance writer. She's written for like Salon and she's done a lot of writing for her local alt weekly. She's actually from Ohio like you. I gave it to her to read and critique. She's a very smart, savvy reader. And she she got into it. And she said, you know, I think my agent would enjoy this. He does a lot of graphic novels, but he's also he also does a lot of YA. She said, would you mind if I passed your manuscript on to him? And I was like, uh, hell no, go for it. <laughs> and so she did. Within about a week, he got back with me having read it and said, uh, I really love this and I would like to represent you. Let's go try to sell a book. It went very quickly from there. So the drafting of The Serpent King went from January of 2013 to February of 2014. And then by April, uh, I had signed with Charlie. And by June, we had sold The Serpent King. So it went that part went very, very quickly. I do know what it's like to be in the querying trenches 
and to be desperately revising a query letter and waiting for those emails and getting those rejections. I think out of the 10 agents I queried, I think I got one request for a partial and that's it. It's interesting that you really do seem to understand the difference between dystopian and post-apocalyptic because dystopian, by definition, is a controlled, ruling, malfunctioning government. Right, right, right. That's what I thought. I'm like, post-apocalyptic, there is no government. It's people, you know, running exactly. around eating each other. Exactly. And dystopian yeah. is where there's like a government that's like, no, the law is you have to eat each other. Right, right. That's how I'm going to – I just came up with that just now. That's how I'm going to start describing the difference. It's funny that you say you were querying that in 2012 because my debut was a post-apocalyptic. I know because yours was one of the ones I looked at and I was like, she published it, so (laughs) maybe I could. Mine was obviously not as good. So (laughs) No, it's not that it was – because let me tell you, as soon as you said The Road Meets Gilmore Girls, I'm like, I want to read that. I guarantee you it had nothing to do with quality because I was querying Not A Drop To Drink in 2010. And I barely made it under that line of no more, this gate is shut. None shall pass. We are yeah. sick of this. I honestly think there's still an appetite among readers oh, for dystopian and post-apocalyptic. I think there's a big appetite for vampire stories. I think there's a big appetite for everything that publishers, editors, agents won't touch. I think yeah. they're just sick of it and they, and they don't want to deal with it. And that's fine. That's their job. They don't have to deal with stuff they don't want to deal with. I do think the audience is still there for those things. Oh, I agree entirely. The readership is there. People still want to read them. I was actually reading an article in Publishers Weekly. They're seeing a resurgence because of political events. We think dystopian is actually going to come back. Basically, they were specifically saying that publishers might be able to really benefit from their backlist from even four years ago when that was all the rage. And even those books that were just hitting mid-list might get a second breath. So maybe you should uh, hold on to your The Road Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I just I love mean, that been, pitch. It's been like eight or nine years since that oh, boom. Yeah. That's a whole generation of young readers. They're reading Station Eleven now, which that yeah. was a great book. It reminded me in some ways of Justin Cronin's series, The Passage. Did you read that? No, I haven't, but I bet I would like it. You need to. It's screwball. And it's huge. Like, it's freaking. Do you like big books? Like thick books? Physically big books. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I just bought Justin a copy Cronin. of It by Stephen King that is oh like my God. thicker than the Bible. It is book. the biggest book I've ever held in my life. Yeah. You need to pick up The Stand then if you picked up. Oh, it. I've read The Stand like four times. I worship Stephen King. Me too. Okay. How old are you? 39. Cool. Okay. I'm 38. So yeah, we grew up reading Stephen King. That's right. I used to ride my bike to the grocery store because it was the nearest place to my house that had Mm -hmm. books. And I would just sit cross-legged in the aisle at the grocery store and read Stephen King books. I read all of Christine that way. I read all of Misery that way. And they would just like mop around me. Like they knew me. (gasps) That is so awesome. That's a beautiful picture. So you were a musician before you were a writer and you've released five albums of your own. And you've worked with Iggy Pop and Nick Cave, which, by the way, I'm really jealous about that. <laughs> so did uh, music lead you into writing, or did you find overlapping talents between those two mediums? 
I grew up as a reader, a massive reader, voracious reader. I worked in bookstores in college and high school. I loved books, but I never thought that writing was something that I could do. It never even occurred to me. I didn't know any writers. I met my first published author when I was 30. So I thought books came from ivory towers and were carried down from these towers by teams of doves. And and in those towers were people behind desks who had Ivy League degrees in writing. And I it was not something I could do. I decided to get into music. So I went out and bought myself a guitar when I was 19, and I taught myself how to play. And I spent my 20s doing music and writing songs and playing in a band and touring and all that good stuff. And when I got into my 30s, I looked around and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I haven't had my big break yet. And if you don't have your big break in music by the time you're 30, pretty much you will not. There are people out there who make music on a high level after they're 30, but they've all gotten their big breaks before they were 30. It was a matter of me accepting reality and saying, well, I'm not going to make it, so I'm going to try to pass music on to a newer generation. So I started volunteering at this camp for teenagers called Tennessee Teen Rock Camp and Southern Girls Rock Camp. And we would teach teenagers how to be rock musicians, how to play guitar, drums, bass, keyboard. And, and through that experience... I just fell in love with these teenagers I was working with and Mm -hmm. the way they approached the art they love in particular was so beautiful to me. The way they would make themselves vulnerable for it, the way they would let it touch their lives and let it be part of their identities and part of the way they present themselves to the world. I just thought it was beautiful and I thought it would be an amazing audience to create for. By then I was 35. I was way too old to have my big break in music generally and specifically to have my big break in the kind of music that they market to young adults. So I had to find something else to do. And so I thought, what am I going to do to reach this audience I want to reach? Well, maybe I can write a book. I noticed Toni Morrison published her first book when she was 39. There was less of an expiration date on writers. I see people publishing their first books in their 50s and 60s and 70s. It's just a lot different from the music industry. That's what led me into writing. I wanted to make art for young adults. But it happened that I had kind of a base of knowledge of books. I'd I'd read a lot of books. I had a great admiration for coming-of-age books. You know, my favorite books growing up were fundamentally young adult books, The Outsiders. We talked about It. I saw as fundamentally a young adult book. Stephen King's short stories, Different Seasons, The Body, those are young adult stories. These are some of my favorite stories, and they are young adult stories. I felt comfortable writing in that young adult space. I felt comfortable telling young adult stories. So that's kind of how that happened. That's really cool. It's interesting that you mentioned an age expiration One of the writers that I know well from Ohio is Cinda Williams Chima. She writes fantasy. She was in her mid-50s, maybe even late 50s, when her first book was published and it hit the NYT. You were saying, you know, there's this cutoff point. How much of that do you think comes with physicality? Because with the music industry, obviously you have to be somewhat physically appealing, if not completely physically appealing in order to really take off. So do you think, and as a writer, you can be ugly as fuck. Like it doesn't matter. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I think that's a huge part of it. Physicality is much more important in music. Live performance is important. People want to go see a good looking musician on stage. 
I can't explain it. It's unfair, I think. You know, it is what it is. Well, you can explain it. Sex sells. That's right, just right, right. to it. I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a total it history. Is. What's going on here? <laughs> I don't understand this fascination with tight skin. What's interesting to me, though, as a consumer, is that the people that I like the most when it comes to performers are usually not classically attractive people. Right. Right. The people that get my attention, they have my attention because they're talented. It's not because they're sexy. Yeah. Well, and and they've definitely overcome something to be in a position where you're hearing about them mm-hmm. and they're not sexy. They're not fun to look at. Uh, yeah, it's just talent. People always ask me, they'll be like, well, who's your favorite actor? My favorite actor is Chris Pine. Chris, I mean, you know, they name all these Chris's. And I'm like, my favorite actor is probably Michael Keaton. Oh, nice. Yeah. I love Michael Keaton. <laughs> I love Michael Can't watch anything the man does. That's great. So Nick Cave is also a novelist. Yes. Have you read his stuff? Yeah, I have. Uh I definitely prefer his music to his writing, but just in general, I kind of worship him, like his artistic work ethic. He, He maintains an office, and this is his artistic work ethic. He wakes up in the morning at like 7 a.m., puts on a suit and tie, drives to his office, sits at a desk, and works on art like he is an accountant that's how he works on art and i think that is so cool that's how i would love to work on art if i could Mm -hmm. but i can't so no i write in my pajama pants (laughs) yeah (laughs) most most people i know do up next living up to expectations when your debut wins the morris listening to your agent when they say the project of your heart may not be the best thing for you to publish and drawing inspiration from people in real life to populate the pages of your fiction. So, The Serpent King, that was your debut, and it won the William C. Morris Award. And that is for the best debut of the year. Did that create pressure for you when it came to delivering your next book? It would have, but for the fact that by the time The Serpent King won the Morris Award, my next book was completely written and it was two months away from being released. Like I think I won the Morris in January and my next book, Goodbye Days, came out in March. If it hadn't worked out that way, if I hadn't had Goodbye Days all written and all in the can and all in the pipe ready to go, by the time I I won that, yes, it would have created tremendous pressure. Mm -hmm. It has created pressure for the third book I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And kind of the way I've dealt with that is by taking a completely different tack than The Serpent King. The different tack is that TV6 is very much a comedy slash dramedy, whereas Serpent King was, the ratio was probably like 30% comedy and lightheartedness to 70% kind of heavy tragedy. The proportions in TV6 are flipped to where TV6, mm-hmm. I, I would call more 70% lighthearted comedy and maybe 30% the, uh, the heavier, darker stuff. That's the way I dealt with the pressure is just to deliver something that's not going to occupy the same space as, mm-hmm. as The Serpent King. I don't think. I think it's, it occupies kind of a different space in the market than, than the Mm -hmm. Serpent King. That's really interesting that you decided that that was a good approach. I think it really is. I think that it's good to establish yourself 
as more than the one thing. Yeah, yeah. I hope it works. I hope it works. The book I had pitched for my third book, I actually wrote the first half of this book, was pretty bonkers. Talking about writing kind of outside your brand. Well, the book I started as my third book was a book that took place in the 1940s. And the protagonist was a teenage Russian girl who had fought in World War II and had been surgically modified along with two other teenage Russian girls to look like aliens and sent by Joseph Stalin in a captured Nazi aircraft to crash outside of Alamogordo, New Mexico to make the Americans think that nuclear weapons testing had attracted unwelcome extraterrestrial attention. But instead, they overshoot Alamogordo, New Mexico, and they crash, guess where? Roswell, New Mexico. Two of the girls die, but one of the girls escapes into the desert and gets taken in by a family who protects her both from the Americans who are searching for her and the Russians who are searching for her trying to kill her because it These girls need to die. You can't have a surgically modified Russian girl running around the New Mexico desert. So it basically turned into like a literary retelling of ALF, where an extraterrestrial ends up getting taken into a family. As you might imagine, my editor was like, yeah, this isn't really your brand. She's very smart. She's very savvy. I'm glad she reined me in and made me go back to the drawing board because then I came up with TV6, which I'm very happy with. I don't know if anybody else will like it, but I'm happy with it, and I'm pleased with how it turned out. So it, it was a blessing in disguise. I hear you. Sometimes the book of our hearts is a book that's really only for your heart. So The Serpent King is very much literature of place. It's set in Tennessee. One of the narrators is the son of a disgraced snake-handling preacher. The other characters are a male fantasy fan who would rather be reading and a female fashion Instagrammer and blogger who is internet famous yet disliked in her hometown. So how did you go about choosing what the different voices were going to be and how do they each reflect growing up in the South? Every book of mine is essentially a referendum on everything and everyone I love at a particular time. And I just jam it all into a book and tamp a lid down on it. And everything that oozes out the side and falls down, I scrape up and put in the bucket for the next book. At the time I was thinking about The Serpent King, I had three people who fascinated me, three types of people who fascinated me. And I could have written a whole novel about any one of them. I was obsessed with musicians who grew up in the rural South and who struggled with faith and who used music as an escape. So that's one type of person. I was obsessed with fashion bloggers and teenagers who use the internet to have a conversation with the wider world, because that Mm -hmm. is so different from the way that you and I grew up. From working at the bookstore, I became fascinated in these blue-collar fantasy nerds who would come in. It was this Mm -hmm. very specific type of guy who were clearly these like blue-collar dudes working construction jobs or working manual labor, and they would come in and just clean out the store of Robert Jordan and Dragonlance mm-hmm. novels and George R. R. Martin novels. And mm-hmm. I was fascinated in those kind of people. And I could not decide which I wanted to write a book about. So I said, you know what? I love misfits. I love groups of friends. I am going to take all three of these archetypes. I'm going to put them in the same novel. And because it's the rural South, 
where you don't get to choose your friends. If you're a misfit, mm-hmm. you just fall in with the other misfits and you don't get to be mm-hmm. picky. You don't get to say, oh, I'm only going to hang out with people who are misfits because they like comic books or because they like skateboarding. It's like, no, mm-hmm. you may be a misfit who likes comic books. And so you're going to hang out with a misfit who likes punk rock. And the two of you are going to hang out with a misfit who just kind of smells like Play-Doh and is a weirdo and just, <laughs> you know, there's no discernible reason why they're a misfit. They just don't fit in. That is how they reflect growing up in the South. Collectively, they reflect the fact that if you're a misfit growing up in the rural South, you don't have your pick of the other misfits to hang out with. Uh-huh. You hang out with the people who don't fit in anywhere else either. That's small town everywhere. You're talking about the blue collar guys reading high fantasy. Yesterday, I was on a bike ride, bicycle ride out here in the middle of nowhere. And a guy on a Harley went past me and he was probably a quarter mile ahead of me. And he stopped and he got off his bike and he turned off his bike and he got his phone out and he took a picture of the sunset. I love that. And he got back on his bike and he drove away. And I'm like, wait, you have to stop because I have to ask you to marry me. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. And now a deviation where Jeff and I talk about our love of all things Irish, genetic memory, and how this led to a character in Goodbye Days. I love all things Irish. And I recently discovered that I am 7% Irish. I thought I had zero Irish blood in me. I've <laughs> discovered that I'm 7% Irish. I genuinely feel like that 116th Irish has had a massive cultural and aesthetic influence on me because I, my whole life, I have been insane for everything Irish. So, you know, I'm telling you, there's something to it, something to genetic memory because obviously I am Irish. I've done my genealogy as far back as I can get it, like, reliably. And they're in Pennsylvania in, like, the 1700s. I can't get it over the water. If you play Baudrillard music for me, I'll cry. Yeah. Like, it's just, I can't. I am so moved. I feel the same way. I feel like Irish genes are powerful genetic memory genes. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. Absolutely. A friend of mine studied abroad in Ireland, and he told me it was so discombobulating because apparently I look very Irish. And he told me, he was like, there were two or three times where I was like, oh my God, Mindy, hey! And I was just like, shit, that's not Mindy. One more thing about my Irish fetish. In Goodbye Days, there is a wholly unnecessarily Irish character. Father of my main character is Irish. Not like descendant Irish, like an Irish immigrant. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever for that character to be Irish. There's no justification. There's no reason. It serves no purpose to the plot. It is a completely (laughs) unnecessarily Irish character. And I'm so happy that, that I included an unnecessarily Irish character in that book. Lastly, how Jeff approached writing a teenage girl effectively, male, female friendships, and where to find Jeff online. And this is very true, by the way. I'm not just paying you lip service. You did a great job of writing both male and female characters. So did you have any reservations about writing the opposite gender? Well, first of all, thank you. I consider that the greatest 
compliment to if if people think I write women characters well, that is the greatest compliment. I truly don't mean to be obsequious or pandering here when I say that I have such tremendous respect for women. Throughout my life, women and girls have been my best friends. I mean, in high school, if it were not for girls, I would have had no friends at all. I mean, they were really my salvation. And just throughout my life, so many of my very closest friends have been women. And so it is so important to me to represent women well in books. And if I can do that, to me, that is the greatest badge of pride. So I really appreciate that. Did I have any reservations about it? At the time that I wrote The Serpent King, I was not smart enough to have as many reservations as I should have. I was not really part of the YA community when I wrote The Serpent King. I was not privy to conversations about representation, own voices, and writing within your lane versus writing outside your lane, and this and that. Mm -hmm. I just sort of ran headlong into writing outside of my lane, which is to write a teenage girl. I've never been a teenage girl. Fortunately, though, this is one area where I kind of felt comfortable in that I had spent so much time as a teenager with teenage girls. I know so many amazing women who are amazing teenage girls. I feel like by taking their qualities and kind of cutting and pasting and creating a sort of... uh, Frankenstein's monster of the amazing teenage girls who I've known. I felt comfortable that I was I was getting it right. So if I took yeah. a little bit from Tracy and Allie and you know all these other cool amazing women I I, I know, and if I took pieces from them and then sort of extrapolated back to what they would have been like as teenagers, and then combined in the amazing teenage girls who I knew as a teenager, I felt pretty comfortable going into it. Then all of my beta readers were women who were Mm -hmm. certainly amazing teenage girls. And Mm -hmm. they would have told me if I had something terribly wrong. I've seen friends of mine sharing around this passage from a book written by a man where a woman sits down to pee and it's like, it's describing like the pee working its way through her body. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Dude, do you know? Yeah. (laughs) Do you know how it works? Uh, Do you know how we're built? We're not built the same way. Yeah. It's not like you're built with like a bendy straws or like a comical, you know, loop de loops of, you know, no, we just sit down and pee. I didn't want to have that kind of situation. I was very aware of it. My personal mandate at every step of the way was to write the character with the utmost respect and with the utmost respect of, of the intelligence of teenage girls from working with teenage girls at uh, Southern girls rock camp at Tennessee teen rock camp. I'll tell you what my reservation was in writing specifically the character of Lydia in the serpent King. It is that Lydia is smarter than I am. And it's very Mm -hmm. hard to write a character who's smarter than you are. That was my reservation. That's what scared me. That's really cool. I think it's interesting too, that you say you felt like you were qualified to write a female because you had so many close female friends now and then. I felt similarly when I was writing Female the Species because Jack was the first male character I'd ever written. But I felt like I could do it because I was the girl that was always hanging out with the guys. Like, that's just who I was. Sure. I would never say I was one of the guys because I don't think that ever quite happens. But 
that was my life. That's how I grew up. I'm, I don't have brothers, but I grew up with male cousins really close, like as brothers. And then, you know, through junior high and high school, you have those awkward years where things change and you're not quite sure everybody has to figure everything out. But I mean, those were my friendships then. And, and those are my friendships now. And I think that friendships are in some ways so much more intimate than a romantic relationship because that, uh, the prism has changed you're very much more free to just be yourself and not second guess and not think about, is this going to sound stupid? Well, you might do that a little, but you're not worried about being attractive. Even today, like I've been with my boyfriend for 10 years and if I had to puke in the toilet and he held my hair, I would be embarrassed. I have friends (laughs) that could totally, they'd hold my hair for me and I wouldn't care. And it was like, dude, I'm puking. I'm sorry. And he'd be like, it's cool. Don't worry. You know? Yep. So I think, you know, I, I really feel like those, those friendships, that's, that's what I feel as a writer gave me that, that empathy and that ability to, to write a male character. I mean, I think you just have to take on the whole enterprise, like with, with a real commitment to, uh, honor that character as, as best you can honor their intelligence, honor their, their spirit. Yeah. I, I don't know a better way to say it, to honor it. No, that's a very good way. Last thing, tell us, tell our listeners where people can find you online so they can follow you. Okay, right. I am on Twitter, at Jeff Zentner, J-E-F-F-Z as in zebra, E-N-T-N-E-R. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I tweet dumb jokes, and I hate Donald Trump, and I (laughs) thank people for saying nice things about my book. Go nuts. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, I am on Instagram. I am at Jeff Zentner there as well. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Jeff Zentner author. I very rarely, I I rarely post on Facebook pages because it's terrible. I mostly, mostly tweet and do Instagram. Those are where I kind of have the most fun. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Rider Rider Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.